Podience. What, you hate that? Well, if you hate wordplay of the dad pun variety, comment on our latest Instagram post with an emoji of that one girl with a facepalm. You know, the one at the end of our show notes. Wait a minute, was this just an excuse to get us to both look at your show references and the pod social media? Yes, yes it was. Attention is everything in this economy, and we gotta get you hooked before you smash that skip button. Because someone told me, <coughs> Spotify user data, <coughs> that only 33% of you guys actually listened through to the end of the last episode. Pause for audibles. Oh, shit. Shout out to that one listener from France. Merci beaucoup. What, you thought our audience was too big for us to possibly call out a single listener? Ha! Well, you clearly don't understand how unpopular we are. That being said... Today's episode concludes a three-part series we started all the way back in 2022 about data, specifically how it is used to train machine learning models, the ethical implications for society, and now how users produce data through their interactions on the internet, as well as the implications for content creators. So yeah, it's going to get a little meta, but hopefully not in the obnoxious Rick and Morty is my personality kind of way. Guess we'll just have to listen. Once again, my guests are Ben Mormon and Stanley Zhang. This episode is predictably a little long, but I try to break up each episode into two to three main ideas segmented by short music breaks. If you don't have all the time in the universe, please take these breaks as a chance to walk away and do something else. We will still be here waiting for you on the World Wide Web. Pretty crazy, right? Anyways, let's get into it. So starting out in our conversation of data and computer science from kind of a consumer perspective, or maybe how most uh, people are engaging with these technologies we've been talking about, um, how do you two understand your personal role um, as an internet user? So I very much view myself as uh, a consumer and as like the, the end product for these uh, companies as for data collection. Uh, so, you know, my leisure time composes a lot of YouTube videos at two times speed while, you know, simultaneously browsing Reddit on my phone. So I, I'm, uh, you know, like many in this generation, chronically online. You know? And I don't think it's a uh, terrible thing. You know, you get enjoyment out of it for sure. Uh, but in this in this attention economy, uh, where we spend our time and attention is a lot on you know useless knowledge and like uh pointless videos right short form attention videos i think the distinction between a product and a consumer of the internet and also um having a bit of an overlap is how i see it i think we obviously produce a huge amount of data for all the companies that control most of our internet usage, but we also get a lot out of that, I think. Um, for example, I learned how to code a lot on YouTube and I've learned so much on YouTube and I've also, we've all gotten tons of entertainment, obviously whether or not that enter entertainment on social media is good or not, it's another question. But um, I think, I guess I think I've felt pretty much my entire life that the internet is definitely the world's most impactful invention, um, especially with the amount of people that have access to it today. But I think, I guess, I, I think it's important to note that we produce all of that data that benefits and brings profits to all the companies that run most of the internet. But we also, I think, gain um, a lot from using it. And I think maybe that's where you have to find the balance between 
understanding that you are that producer of data that's valuable um, and also understanding that that's almost inevitable for getting the benefits you want from the internet. Yeah, I think that's a good point that a lot of what I and I think most people would say are the most beautiful things about the internet, you know, this connectivity of people, this uh, democratization of information, um, everything is at your fingertips. And I mean, you've probably heard people say that um, you have more technology in your pocket than NASA had when they landed a man on the moon. Um, And yeah, it's all true. And it's really mind boggling. But at the same time, I think that unlimited potential has allowed for a lot of corruption. Um, I mentioned last episode that Google's um, original saying was don't be evil. And that uh, even a company with such great intentions that really did just want to give information to everyone, like no longer did you have to buy a set of encyclopedias that become outdated within a couple years. Like now everything is out there for everyone. Um, But, you know, just because um, everything is there doesn't necessarily mean everything gets equal attention. And that's where now these companies have realized that certain algorithms will push people towards certain information. And then with that, uh, content creators, myself included, um, are kind of tailoring the content towards what people want um, to see. And (laughs) to a certain degree, it's not even what we want, but it's kind of what we're being fed. And I think a lot of it just plays into human nature. Like we're an inquisitive species, and that is what has allowed us to succeed. We want to do and make and see, um, and we kind of quest information. Um, and now that information hole that we kind of desire is just being filled with very short little bits. And we kind of feel like we're gaining a lot. And like you can know a lot about obscure little things and you can fall into whatever rabbit hole you want. Um, but it's not necessarily always productive, right? It can be very overwhelming and stimulating. It can kind of um, take you away from uh, reality. Um, and there's clearly a lot of detrimental impact. Yeah, for sure. You know, <laughs> Well, I just want to say, like, you know, the algorithm is, like, what is determining what every one of us sees for the most part every day. And you, you hear it a lot on, like, TikTok or YouTube, like, the TikTok algorithm, right? I mean, TikTok has, like, blown up within just a couple of years, way, blown past YouTube, blown past Facebook. And you see these other social medias try to try to mimic that kind of short-form video content with, like, Facebook Reels, you know, Instagram Reels. Um, and a lot of it is, is just trying to capture user user attention through the algorithm, right? And I think what's fascinating about you know whatever algorithm each of these uh, companies are using is that there's differences between the algorithms they use for uh, different geographic regions. Actually, I just read about this the other day. Like the uh, the TikTok algorithm in in China shows like Chinese citizens using using uh, the, the Chinese version of TikTok um, more more uh, educational videos like scientific STEM videos things that you know uh, might spark interest in an academic field but whereas in, in like uh, the US they show TikTok users these stupid trends of people getting hurt like and then it encourages the user base to you know follow these ridiculous useless trends and uh consume useless information basically and that that's obviously some like direct manipulation of the algorithm right but even uh unintentionally algorithms could uh unintentionally hurt us right and what they show 
Um, interestingly enough, to add another layer to this conversation, the video that you're referring to, I'm pretty sure I saw the same one. And that, you know, what that makes me realize is the content that's being pushed to you guys who we grew up in a similar place. We have similar interests, you know, we're college educated men in the uh, 18 to 24 range. Like we are fitting into these demographic groups. And because of that, there's like an assumption of liked interests and content is being pushed to us. And like, to a certain degree, what I know is because of this, the, these algorithms. Um, and it just, it's, you see it everywhere yeah. and it's like hard to, it, I mean, you can't break out of it. Like we're not going to break out of it. And I don't know if it's necessarily bad, um, but to a certain degree, like uh, in the last couple of years, you know, uh, like a lot of people, I feel like I've gotten into mushrooms. I think mushrooms are cool. I like the whole idea of the mycelia <laughs> network connecting trees. And like right now I'm reading Suzanne Samard's book, all about you know the wood wide web um but like sometimes i get kind of insecure about it because i'm like everyone is talking about this now everyone likes mushrooms and it makes me feel like the information i have is like maybe cliche and that's why kind of i wanted to read her book because i'm like i just need to get off the internet i need to like find like a first-hand account of this like actual researcher yeah, I was actually going to say, Stanley, it's interesting you brought up the TikTok algorithm. Um, I guess it's maybe inevitable that we would, but um, I was actually just, I don't know if I saw this on Twitter, but I read this um, blog post today about how TikTok's algorithm, everybody's like, man, it's so good. It re recommends all these niches and everybody gets into their own thing and it's really great. And that's what I've thought up thought up until today and i think it's obviously it's true but i think the article is saying recommender systems which is um, i guess the subset of machine learning models that recommend things to people netflix is really famous for really doing that well um initially there's kind of a, a not mathematical ceiling but a current state-of-the-art ceiling and all of the social media websites are at that ceiling. But the the article that I was reading was talking about why TikTok, it seems so, so different and so intensely good at recommending new things. And they talked a lot about the format of TikTok and how on Instagram, there's an emphasis on like sharing and you send people things and you follow people. And that's what you see most of the time. Obviously now they're changing it a bit, but you still see everybody you follow. And that's kind of um, the focus, but on TikTok, the idea is that you just scroll through things, keep going until you see something you like, and then it does notice that and it recommends you similar things, but it also will continue recommending you other things that aren't within your interests and then see what happens. And it's just constantly recommending things. And also the focus, or it seems, I think this is maybe like I guess, I don't know if this is a form of confirmation bias, but maybe similar, something similar where you're quickly scrolling so much and you see all these things, you stop on the things you like and like, wow, that's great. And then you scroll past 20 things and then you stop on another thing that's like exactly what you want. So it seems like it's really great, but all this to say, obviously TikTok does have a good recommendation um, system, but um, and I think it also points out a bit more to, like you were saying, Coley, having quick tips and like quick information that you can learn really quickly from these, these sites. Um, it's really interesting and fun to learn that. And it's hard to get out and read a book 
because it, it is a lot more of a difficult thing to do when you can just scroll on TikTok for five minutes in between classes or something and gain all of that information. Mm -hmm. So also, I don't want to sound like a cynic and be like, just go out and read a book, you know, like, I'm not trying to, like, profess like this backlash against this technology, because I see its power, like, it's very clear. Um, to a certain degree, uh, it like mobilizes people, you know, it like, it does create those groups those like affinity groups. And like, quickly, you can see how that can be damaging. And like your example of um, the like, Chinese TikTok. Um, I mean, I think to a certain degree, that is a form of like, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, propaganda arm, you know, like they're pushing content on people that is more practical and maybe like science based or, uh, you know, that aligns with the values uh, that they are trying to promote. Um, so, yeah, like that seems bad. And that, that's like the whole concern with why like U.S. politicians are very skeptical of like a Chinese owned company um, where there aren't there isn't really a separation of industry and government. Um having such control over um, users data and those users are um, highly susceptible. I mean, it's, it's very clear. I mean, everything you've seen in uh, recent history since the beginning of the internet, um, I think would leave you with the belief that we are susceptible people and we can be pushed into places that we wouldn't necessarily go on our own. Um, so yeah, that, I think reading a book is good, but I admit it's really hard for me. Like Ben, I always uh, admired when we were younger, you were a very like natural reader. And I was always like jealous of how, uh, how well you could just sit down this series and really connect with it. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's value to that, but I guess how do we balance these different things? Because nothing is bad in its, in its like pure form. Like these are all good things that we should want and lead to like a well-educated society um and well-educated societies are able to stand up against corruption and tyranny um and these are all great um but clearly something fundamentally wrong has happened in in this uh this evolution of the internet that is not great i think the way i like to use the internet is to find new interests and you get exposed to so many different things like we've said it's really exciting once you see something like oh i've never looked at that that's so interesting like you said mushrooms i've found out like um about um i guess i can't even think of an example but a million things <laughs> maybe we can cut that part out oh missed that sorry ben we all know that you've learned so much from the internet love you um, I think I may have mentioned uh, something about this in the one of the two last episodes. Um, and I think it's really interesting growing up as internet is also growing up with us. Um, and I think there are quite a few benefits for us um, growing up with the internet where we have learned the intuitions behind how things work and how we can interact with things on the internet. And I think something else with that, that we were... I think we we're starting to learn in school and I'm sure hopefully it's um, more present today as kids are growing up, but learning internet literacy and learning how to find reliable sources of information and what you should be looking at and how to navigate the internet um, is really important. Yeah. I, I don't remember the last time I read a book. Um, I think I, opened a book uh, sometime last year at a gift shop or something. <laughs> uh, but, but I think, I think, you know, books, 
all the information in a book can be found online as well, right? You can find digital copies of the book. And before there were, before the invention of like paper, there were older technologies to record uh, written information, like stone tablets, you know? Um, and, you know, you could think maybe, maybe uh, digital is just the next form of a book, right? Well, I don't think, maybe we don't have to clean on to like the old, the old ways of reading a book, right? Uh, but like you said, there are definitely dangers to uh, having all your information online where there are so many uh, things you have to navigate, like uh, like fake news, right? <laughs> and finding reliable sources and vetting your sources. And, uh, and people say, you know, remember your teachers used to say that Wikipedia is not a reliable source, right? But you know, it, it kind of is. It's uh, Wikipedia is kind of like a decentralized information source where a bunch of people can verify information on Wikipedia, right? I really like this conversation about like media literacy, and I think that a lot of young people inherently think that we're rather media literate because we've been growing up in this, and you know, we have firsthand kind of experience. It's like this wave of people trying to teach us how to be better on the internet like i think we all grew up as a kid in school um being told that wikipedia was not a legitimate source right and why is that you're right because it's decentralized information um but i think maybe the lesson behind like go read a book or like get off the internet get off uh these articles this like kind of fast-paced news environment is that we need to slow down and i think that is valuable to a certain degree like it is good that we can just learn a lot and gain a lot. But I think when you're just absorbing so much, maybe you're not really sitting with ideas long enough to actually let it like soak in, right? Like books have a lot of good information, but they also have a lot of bullshit in them. Like authors are very flamboyant with their language. They like add in a lot of stuff, like these little bridges between maybe like important factoids. And that's why what the internet does really well is it allows like really intelligent people to go and read these things and kind of give like a critique, a review and like give their expert opinion and kind of infuse their own ideas into this like firsthand source. And that's really valuable too, because, you know, there's a lot of like uh, literature out there and um, especially when it's like highly technical and like, I can't understand it, you know, like it's really unintelligible. So that's when I think having someone uh, kind of distill the important facts and like the important things of like this movement um this this idea this point in history like that is super valuable but yeah so i think the lesson there is maybe taking that time to slow down with information and i think books are just kind of a proxy for that and it's not to say you can't do that on the internet but i think the structure of the internet is inherently not about slowing down um it is trying to push things on you quickly and your example of like facebook um i remember recently uh i think it I can't remember if it was Twitter or Facebook, uh, future Coley moment here. They wouldn't allow people to share um, an article if they did not like first like click into and actually read to it because there was like a problem of people just like seeing like the headline of some article from like the Daily Wire or Vox or New York Times or what whatever source it is. It's like not even trying to say that this source is uncredible, but I think the problem there is that people are just seeing headlines. And um, I'm sure you can find a lot of articles on the internet that have a very clickbait, attention-grabbing headline, and you read in and you find out like, oh, this is like an entirely different topic. Um, so I think it is important to just actually know 
what we're sharing. And that can be very dangerous if we're just kind of pushing information without really even understanding what that information is. Quick clarification. The feature first announced in May of 2021 only prompts the user with a message warning of the dangers of sharing articles without reading them first. It is rather easy to click through and is far from a comprehensive solution. Twitter implemented a similar feature in September of 2020, speaking more broadly to social media companies exploring available means of slowing the spread of disinformation on their platforms. That's a really good point that I wanted to bring up. Um, kind of like quick info versus like detailed info, a big thing. Um, and I, I, I try to catch myself doing this um, and stop myself from doing this. But yeah, I have the New York Times app and I read that a lot. And I also obviously look on Instagram a ton. And it's very easy to just be scrolling through and see a headline like, oh, wow, now I know that complete subject and that whole event and everything that's going on. So, and I've done this like a million times. I see that and then I go hang, I'm hanging out with somebody and like, oh, did you see that this happened? And then have no other context other than that. On Instagram, I think everybody sees all of the stories being posted by everybody or everybody resharing posts by all these Instagram accounts that are posting about news or like um, self-help tips or like, I don't know, everything. Um, and they're very quick and easy to digest and read and they're colorful and bright and nice um, and pull you in. And I think those are great. And it's a nice way to like, just catch up on current events or like, figure out how different ways you can do things for your friends or help yourself or whatever it is. But um, I think I've also seen quite a few examples where they are just completely incorrect. Yeah, I definitely connect to the Instagram example. And I think the first time I really noticed how Instagram was being used as a tool for information sharing or education was um, in the summer following uh, the murder of George Floyd and how like when everyone was at home, like very quickly, uh, like all of these videos were spreading, like from protests, from all, like this mass mobilization of people was happening on Instagram. And the primary uh, tool was Instagram stories. Um, and then people kind of made these, uh, the stories would maybe like link to like a post or like kind of like a series. And they're kind of like little PowerPoints, you know, um, and in those like 10 little slides and like i even did i i did this for um a fundraiser for my my uh my club uh, uc triathlon club and i followed that format you know if like you start out with like hey this is like a thing i want you to be aware of you know and like big big capital letters bring them in right and then you kind of go into your little points and like it is very much like a little presentation um but clearly like that format, I think at first, like I would see these of like, oh, I want to click through them and I would like read them. Right. And then usually at the end, someone like a lot of people do um, do their due diligence and put in like further reading or like these are some sources like you can educate yourself more on this topic. Like, And I think how that should be viewed is like an introduction to an idea, not to say like, oh, I know everything about systemic racism after looking at these 10 stories. Um, that's clearly not true. When we talk about media literacy or the things that we were taught in school, we were talking about like Wikipedia not being a viable uh, source of information, which that definitely like I, I <laughs> there's a range of arguments there. Um, and I'm not trying to make an argument for or against, but we're clearly not talking about the actual means um, that most people are receiving their information from. So I wonder where is the responsibility 
to teach this to people. Like it kind of seems like the responsibility is given to just us right now and our peers. I think the responsibility of teaching is kind of on all of us. I think we should be, I think you should always challenge your friends when you realize they are maybe just reading headlines and obviously, and I like a fine kind way, but I think what's you your source for that? That's Yeah, I think you should challenge your friends and make sure you all are um, reading things that are reliable and making sure you aren't just um, taking things with no context and spreading all of these random um, things. And I also think it's just good to challenge each other in general because that's, I think, how you grow and learn what you really believe in. I think there's definitely a problem with like people just taking information they're given for granted, you know, or, or just like believing it just because they're told that by like a slightly authoritative figure. Going back to everything we've been saying, um, what we believe is truth and trustworthy. Um, it all just kind of comes down to credibility, but then what is credibility? It's really just people tying themselves to an idea. Um, like when Kanye tweets something anti-Semitic, um, and people just want to disregard it as not really that meaningful. And it's like, oh, it's just Kanye being Kanye, right? Well, clearly it's not because there are people that like give him credibility, that he has followers. And especially in a world where um, it's very easy to kind of create a, um, a sphere of influence for yourself on small scales um, all the way up to, you know, the most influential people we know, Taylor Swift, Kanye, uh, Messi, right? Like these are icons. These are stars. And we might kind of view like their pursuits as being um, maybe just novel, right? Like Messi plays a game with a ball with a bunch of grown ass men. But like if Messi tweets something, um, like that's kind of him tying his own credibility and status to this idea. Um, and I, I, I mean, I think to a certain degree, it is all kind of just a proxy for status and who has influence, who has power, who has money. Um, and now that we've kind of entered this attention economy, the idea of status and power has changed um, to maybe like we have influencers, right? Like now, I, if you ask young people, um, some people will say, I want to be an influencer. Like that is a career path in, in ways. Um, and I think for a while, again, it became kind of a laughable idea, but clearly people are gaining influence. And like, that's not to say influence doesn't have like any kind of, uh, moral weight to itself right it is just a platform for uh spreading this or that not to say that this is wrong this is bad and it really is just kind of how people interpret it um and kind of how it plays itself out in society and then i think coming back to the idea of sourcing the reason in school we were taught not to use wikipedia is because we were told we should use academic sources that we should read uh things from jstor that are coming from these peer-reviewed studies or from someone that has the distinction from a university and like to a certain degree i think the what, what's really beneficial there is the peer review process and that's something that is maybe lost on the general internet um however i do think that is also in a form gatekeeping information it's it's saying that only someone with a degree from a prestigious university can be a authority on this particular issue and i don't think that's true so Obviously, uh, these are like two extremes, right? Everything that you say and read and believe does not need to come from an academic source. Um, however, uh, we can't blindly 
associate truth and trustworthiness with status um, and influence. That's true. Um, you, you, sometimes you hear of uh, these really uh, like famous influencers and celebrities being brought onto shows to speak about topics that they have no knowledge about uh, just because they're famous or they have like so many followers they people want to hear their opinions but you know they're not like all knowing so i've been trying to wrap my head around all of this and it's very easy to pick out all the things that are wrong but it's really hard to think about a way to change your behavior to kind of prevent these negative feedback loops um, and even to a certain degree, I think being self-aware and like understanding that the algorithm has influence on you, that is valuable for sure. But that isn't like a solution, right? Like people talk all the time, like, oh, my screen time is terrible. Like I'm on TikTok all day or um, it's, it's easy enough to become aware of something. Um, and especially like younger people, I think we're more aware of how these technologies are influencing us. But that isn't necessarily to say that we are changing our behavior to get to an outcome that we feel more fulfilled with, that we feel better, happier, healthier. Um, I would say almost everyone thinks they're on their phone too much. They're addicted, right? Very few people, even people I've met that are like off social media. It's like, it's not like a, there's no cure-all, right? Um, it's definitely a, a, a plurality of things. And I think that means you have to take a, a pluralistic approach. You have to, um, you have to do a lot of things. And I'm not even sure like what the most important thing is, um, but I think we have kind of addressed a lot of these these issues, right? Like sources aren't put at the end of a podcast or a video or a post or whatever you're reading, listening to, watching um, in jest. Like I think in school, like how I learned about sourcing and kind of because it was always an obligation and it was required of me, I kind of viewed it as, oh, there's sources on something that just kind of gives it credibility, right? And then I like, I don't really look at sources that much either. So I, I'm acknowledging this, right? And I, I see how it's, it becomes very uh, circular. Um, and maybe I'm just at the step of acknowledging. Um, but yeah, I am trying to teach myself to like go in and actually read those sources. And I put sources on this show, right? And I'm not doing that in jest. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt people into reading them. Hmm, well, maybe it was. How else will you express your distaste for dad jokes on a public platform? Also, who thinks I need some kind of bell when I butt in? Well, to all of you crypto bros, do I have an investment opportunity for you? We are setting up a GoFundMe to buy Future Coley a swanky new bell sound effect. DM us to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Now, back to old boring Coley. But I'm saying that these were the things, and I'm not including everything, I'm usually including the sources that helped explain concepts to me um, the best. And it was something that like, I did not know going into this show. And then I found these resources on the internet and they helped explain this concept to me. Um, so yeah, that is one, um, specific approach. So I think sometimes it's important to get out of that academic setting where sourcing is an obligation and it doesn't just inherently give things credibility. Like it is important. Um, and it's, it extends beyond just, uh, this academic process of paper writing. And maybe it's a thing that uh, we should kind of feel comfortable doing in, in uh, kind of how we interact on the internet. And uh, there's definitely lessons we can take. And in the same way, there's lessons we can take from um, social media platforms that democratize information and bring that back in to the education system and teach us ways that we don't have to be so siloed into 
um, who we inherently give credibility to because, you know, those communities of highly educated people that are writing papers at prestigious universities, like it's not a very diverse cast. There's definitely a limited scope of opinion that you will get when you're only seeking out those sources. So shifting gears a little bit, how accurately do you think our digital persona, um, sort of the sum of all the personal data that is collected uh, based on our browsing behavior, um, all the way down to heart rate tracking, how well does that represent our real world personality? Um, And with that, do you think this persona can be used to accurately predict um, situational responses to complex problems? I think in a lot of ways, uh, the algorithm and all these social media or, or all these uh, content platforms, they know us in a way better than we know ourselves, right? Like can, uh, they can predict what we like. They can predict what we'll say. Um, and we can't really do the same uh, in reverse, right? You don't know uh, how these algorithms are going to predict things. You don't know what a language model is going to output, right? But, um, and, and then also in another way, to answer one of your other questions, like how well do they represent our real world personality? So even though I think they, you know, can, can make some really accurate predictions uh, and insights about ourselves and our personalities, there are also things that can't be captured through, through uh, our digital persona, right? There's like uh, the, the in-person interactions can't really be captured. You know, someone who is very, uh, you know, flamboyant on the internet may be really reserved in real life. You know, there's like, I know some people who are, they have very uh, different and distinct personalities online versus uh, in person. So do you have a means of separating like the digital persona as, as in like our rhetoric on the internet? Because I, I get the idea that like no one is Aggressive. as terrible as they are um, on Twitter as they are in real life. Like Twitter kind of brings out a nasty energy in people. Um, but, but like, what do you think? Uh, and obviously this, this, uh, digital persona, as far as like the, the information that companies and, uh, to certain degree governments have on, uh, individual users. Um, that's not necessarily something that you can like see and identify, but it is being used to push all this information towards us. So how do you separate maybe, um, how the, uh, the internet can interpret like our physical like presence and like our our conscious presence on the internet and then maybe our more unconscious presence i think it's like stanley said our internet usage and the data that's collected um on us can can be a possible proxy for who we are offline in real life but um i think to a certain point the data that is collected is representing what they, as in companies who are, who are using this data, what they want and what they're going to get out of it. So that, I guess, obviously interactions on social media or interests or topics that are flagged on social media that you may enjoy, um, that obviously correlates a bit to who you are online. Um, and it also, I think, predicting how you may react in certain situations and things like that may be 
bit of a reach right now, I think, hopefully. But um, in Europe, um, there is a thing called GDPR, which is some regulations around customer data and how companies have to do a few things with your data. And some of those things are like explain fully what data they're collecting and how they're using it. And if you can limit that data collecting. Um, also, if you delete your account, they have to delete all of your data within um, like some time frame. I think it's like 30 or 60 days maybe. And then another thing, and there are some more, but another thing that I, I really like is you have to be able to download all the data that the company has for you. And obviously, this is the ex data explicitly connected to you. They are also collecting a ton of data based on like anonymous data that's not con explicitly connected to you and your data influences models and everything. So you can't really pull that, but you can pull, for example, I did, I downloaded all my data from Google and I can go back to searches from 2008 and see what I was looking up and everything I was looking up, all of my YouTube videos that I've watched. And um, it will also, you can see files that will list like topics you're interested in and it's really interesting. So I guess for anyone listening, if you want to just go to your favorite social media site and like search Instagram, download my data or whatever it is, um, it's really interesting. So that's a that's a thing you can do here in the States? Anyone can... Uh... Um, yeah, I was, I was just actually thinking about that. I think, um, I don't think it's a law in, in the United States, but I think since it is um, regulated uh -huh. in, the, in the EU, um, I think all companies kind of yeah. adhere to that no matter what, even if they're in the States too. So um, I, I know for all the big tech companies, you can most definitely do that. Uh, you just have to search. Like it's called Google Takeout for Google, but then most other companies just look up like Snapchat, download your data. Or whatever. Interesting. I did not know that. That definitely seems like a good first step. Yeah, you should do it. I have a, I have a full um, folder on my computer called Big Brother and I download it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like clear that people like this information. I mean, that's the reason Spotify Wrapped is getting so popular. And now throughout the year, there's just all these different ways that uh, Spotify is revealing to us like, oh, these are your uh, personality traits and your music. There's a lot of ways that this data is uh, kind of finding its way back to us. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, most companies are kind of using it to like keep us engaged on their platform. Um, but it is good to almost just get that raw data. They should have a uh, Google wrapped. Here's your uh, most illegal Google search. Here's your dumbest question that you ask Google. So I think pivoting to this idea of like the implicit data that isn't necessarily attached to you as a user, um, but is clearly like training these algorithms and these models. I recently heard of a controversy about um, like some of the art generation and its ability to like make an image in the style of this person. Um, and this is like a very, very much like a gray area in copyright. This idea is still being litigated, but I think kind of the, the legal opinion of it is that it isn't illegal to train a model based on someone's data or like their um, like intellectual property, like if they have a particular style. Um, but then it becomes a whole lot more um, confusing when you then have a product and then if you then distribute this product, like then, then what's happening? I think we're kind of in the early, the early stages of uh, the AI art generation that um, to a certain degree, no one is 
you know, making windfall profits off the images they're they're getting from um, these these AI. It's just kind of fun, and you know, you might share it on Twitter. Um, but I guess to a certain degree, like, well, what if your tweet goes viral, and what if you're gaining influence? And we kind of earlier were talking about how in this like modern society, uh, uh, influence does equate to power and capital and money. It definitely feels like this is on the edge where we have no idea how to regulate it. Um, and I mean, this is a this is a big point of controversy: is how do you return the value of data back to people? So I think where this all kind of comes to a dramatic conflict is the binary between human content creators and then these tech companies that are able to use all of this information on the internet, which a lot of uh, which is copyrighted um, and does have uh, intellectual protections that I can't just, you know, take this image or take this writing. And um, I mean, we're all familiar with plagiarism laws. Um, but there is also this idea of fair use. And so I, I, there's definitely a gray area um, that is kind of causing a lot of conflict between artists and, um, you know, podcasters, YouTubers, um, people on TikTok. Like, uh, we've created a very big economy for people that have ideas and um, content that they want to put out there. Um, but then maybe we don't have a lot of great protections once that content is um you know, available for use. Um, so now we are participating on kind of the other side of this uh, this content and user, or if you think about it in terms of rhetoric, you have uh, uh, a speaker and an audience, um, but this isn't necessarily like a one-way relationship. It's very mutual. It's very reciprocal. There's kind of like a passing information in that I'm changing my message based on, you know, the data and analytics I'm getting about who's listening to the show um, and maybe what kind of, uh, what length content they respond to. I know not everyone is listening to these whole episodes, right? Um, so I don't know, how do you see this kind of, uh, this mirror between the content creator and the audience as, uh, influencing, uh, this product that we're kind of co-creating? I think, um, I guess it makes me think of, um, this is a bit of a machine learning throwback, but it makes me think of a generative adversarial network, which is basically, there's um, the, uh, this very quick, an example, I guess, um, is um, there's an artist and then, or a forger, and then like an art um, critic, I don't know, not critic, but like someone who proves the art is an art verifier. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like an authenticator. Yeah. Authenticator, I guess is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So anyway, the artist kind of starts out and say he's trying to um, mimic Starry Night by Van Gogh. He starts out and kind of does a sketch and he's like, hands it to the authenticator. The authenticator is like, this does not look like that. You need to change a few of these things. And he goes back, Forger starts drawing again, gives another one. And then they're working together and the authenticator is constantly trying to prove that the Forger's work is a, forge, a forgery. And then the Forger's tr constantly trying to prove that his work is the authentic thing. And so there's this mirror back and forth and they like converge to a really, really, really detailed, well-made Star Night, I guess, by Van Gogh. But um, that made me think of this because I think like a positive take on it is that the listeners will respond to things that are well-made and are received well and are interesting and um, add value to their life. And if they 
if they interact less with whatever content it is, the content creators will maybe shift it a bit and see how the response um, is. And I guess that's what we were talking about, maybe on mic or off mic. We are trying to structure it more and have more detailed questions and make sure we're figuring out the flow more um, to hopefully see if more people interact and how the format works and how people like it. Um, so yeah, I think a positive take is that it helps the internet um, and the users and content creators all have a symbiotic relationship to improve everything that we are consuming. I really like how Ben responded to a question about the relationship between creators and users through content with an analogy to machine learning. Again, this reminds us that the technological underpinning of artificial intelligence is mimicking the means of human communication and learning. However, what I'm still trying to understand is what qualities give users the impression of authenticity. And are these qualities exclusively human? Current AI models have shown remarkable ability to mirror our peculiar ways of communicating through language and art. However, at the core, they have no understanding of what they are producing, only that it is in the mold of human behavior. ChatGPT, like other large language models, is a probabilistic technology that to a rather high degree of accuracy predicts the next most likely word in a sentence based on lessons learned from its training data. Much like the process Ben just described, it has no comprehension of what it is actually saying, just that it is closer to the desired result, thereby influencing how it will perform in similar situations in the future. Right now, the immediate result of this technology is a great reduction in the cost, time, and energy to produce very well-made content with convincing language that provides the illusion of authenticity. There's no real way to guarantee the truthfulness of this content without further human investigation. Therefore, my concern is that we could quickly see a media landscape flooded with highly articulate disinformation with little ability to moderate content from AI models. Personally, I think there is value in the act of creation, whether that be graphic art or written language that is being undermined by the ability to create content at will. This is something I'd be interested in discussing further in another episode, so if you are listening and this issue sparks some ideas, send us a message. Likewise, if there's anything else in the show you're curious to dive into more, reach out to us so we can explore topics of interest to our audience. So I guess what is the value of authenticity in this attention economy and what is authenticity? I was thinking less authenticity and more of, I guess, what people think is good to interact with. Um, but I think that does inherently somewhat mean authenticity. People don't want to listen. People are just full of shit. Um, and so well, I, I was thinking in the terms of like an authenticator. Um, and this is like a big deal in like NFTs in that um, basically it's just kind of like a ticket um, and you're just proving ownership of this object. And it's um, like these are all kind of based in like real world concepts and that art is valuable um, like part of what makes art valuable is the ability to track its ownership and the history of that object. Um, and then this idea has now morphed into NFTs. And I mean, the, the world of NFTs has got off the rails, obviously, with uh, the Trump NFTs and everything. But uh, I think one of the best descriptions I heard of it um, was this idea that it is kind of just uh, it gives you access to a community in a way. And like there will be communities built around like, oh, um, you have to have this type of NFT to get here. It's like, I mean, it really is kind of like a social club and that's kind of the way art has acted in the past. And now maybe it just is a little more affordable and it gives, um, 
the ability for did I mean part of the idea is that it gives the ability um, to digital creators to um, kind of monetize work that has previously been undervalued. But I kind of also see that in conflict with now this AI art generation, um, in that maybe each of these images that Dolly is spitting out don't inherently have value in themselves. But I guess um, I guess the human value is uh, a thing that has been authenticated by uh, this this process of creating an NFT and tokenization, um, which I don't know. I, do do you see these ideas in conflict, or am I maybe just uh, not really seeing how they uh, can kind of participate in the same digital future? I know. I think they are. Um, I guess what two specific ideas are you thinking well one the idea that now stable diffusion and dolly and these products that um in the image generation world um they've been trained on a very robust set of data including like all the artistic styles and movements ever even with like i think quite a bit more obscure information and people that kind of maybe thought that they had cornered uh uh, a technique or style like i've seen increasing examples of people sharing this on social media saying that like hey my style that i worked really hard to develop through a lot of work and effort and if you've ever used like adobe um products or a lot of what digital creators using it's hard it's time intensive it's like not easy and it takes a while to like kind of figure out in the same way that like monet has his style digital creators have their style um but now very quickly um, this this market they've tried to create for themselves is disappearing because of AI art generation. Um, but at the same time, NFTs were originally, my understanding was they were supposed to make it easier for digital content creators to monetize um, their work rather than on on the current model of Web 2.0, which we're going to have another episode to distinguish these ideas a little more because I think we've been saying Web 3.0 or tokenization this. Um, it will be another episode. I'm sorry that uh, we're kind of throwing them out right now. Hopefully it'll make sense in the long run. Um, but currently on this model, like there's a lot of information out there and it's all technically like available and free. There is copyright, right? You can't necessarily download this image, print it and sell it to someone. Um, but you can view it. Like we've we've created an ecosystem where you can view these things. Um, and to compensate for that, there's lots of ads on Web 2.0. Web 2.0 is built on infrastructure of ads. And if things are free and you're not necessarily like buying anything, you're not paying to be on this domain, you're not paying to use Facebook, um, you are inherently the product, right? Like things are being sold to you. So going back to the question at the top of the episode, I asked, uh, how do you understand your role as an internet user? I understand my role um, mostly as a product on at least Web 2.0, right? Like if I am not paying for most of these services, um, it's because they're trying to sell things to me. Like we're in a capitalist society, like things run on money and things and goods and the trading of all this. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a long-winded way of asking, do you view nfts and tokenization and this idea of authenticity and um empowering digital creators at least that's what i understood its core principle of being in conflict with ai art generation and models that were previously trained on other people's work and data and now are producing something that is original and that it's never been on the internet but the only reason it can happen is because of a model of data set that was empowered by the work of creators.
Yeah, I think, well, NFTs first. I, I'm i a bit out of the loop on NFT world because I stepped back after it got a bit too much for me. But um, I, I do think that it, it has and is empowering creators to have some sort of public marketplace where they can sell their art. And it is obviously like fine art um, in the physical world is quite expensive and it's hard to really be a part of other than just going to art museums and even art museums are quite expensive. But um, NFTs as a digital way to collect art or um, whatever it is, is I think has been a good way for creators to, um, I guess, sell things and share their art. Um, with open AI's Dolly and also Stable Diffusion, I think um, I listened to a podcast recently with Sam Altman, who I've mentioned before. He's the CEO of OpenAI, and um, he talked a lot about Dolly as well as GPT three, um, which is the language model, and he pointed out that I think in the past we thought that. AI would first take over all the physical labor and factories and everything, and then go more towards um, processes and then go more towards creative things. And creative, the creative creativity part of the world would be last. But now we realize robotics are uh, robotics is insanely hard. It's really, really hard to get a well, very fine and precise robot in a manufacturing world to do things repetitively over and over and over without fault to a point where humans are not even like beneficial to have in factories. So he pointed out now we're really finding that these creative tasks are much easier for AI models to really take hold of and learn from. And so um, following that, I guess he talked a lot about how um, whether or not GPT-3 and um, Dolly are going to just replace all artists or like copywriters or whatever. Um, and he said, and I, I somewhat agree with this and I'm still trying to figure out, I guess, exactly what I th- think, but he um, sees it a lot more as a tool like Photoshop and like Illustrator, uh, Adobe products, like you mentioned, Coley. Those are tools right now to create that art and really um, do a lot of graphic design and everything. And then also, um, like, um, I think we've seen with like writing Grammarly and some other tools help and assist in the writing of, um, essays or whatever it is. Um, and his view is that these Dolly and GPT three and stable diffusion are now just more advanced tools that don't really limit the creativity of artists or writers, but assist in making things more, um, especially I think. I agree with the writing it makes things um, a lot easier to produce and leads to more productivity, though, obviously you're going to have to, you can't just, at least right now, and I don't think you should ever, as, at least for the foreseeable future, just like send in a prompt and then re- get the data and just post it immediately. So there's always going to be the need for the person who is thinking about what to give the model and also how to change it and how to modify and create that actual like human interaction and touch and custom creativity. And I think it's, I guess I'm not totally sure how I feel about this yet either, but I do think um, they're great tools. And I don't think, I I guess I do not think that Dolly or Stable Diffusion are going to replace um, artists Mm -hmm. in the world. I guess actually, after you explained that, 
I kind of turned my question against itself and I realized these aren't in conflict. I think NFTs could actually be a security for humans in that it's proving um, the creator is who they say they are and that this is an authentic item and it gives you a chain of ownership. Um, and that's all very human. Those are those human touch points on this, like this, if you imagine like a baseball card that's passing through the internet and we can follow the whole path because of blockchain, which is kind of the beauty of blockchain, right? Um, and then, so I could see how that is how you distinguish the value of human created things in a world where we're going to have a lot of AI generated creative outputs, right? Um, however, do you think, and I, I don't, I don't know if there's rules about this or um, if it's uh, if it's been asked, but can someone make an NFT out of a um, AI generated piece of art? Um, Definitely. That seems like a conflict to me. Like if it's supposed to be the protection, then how can you certify um, art made by AI? I don't know. I guess if the ideas of NFTs are to certify that it was human made i guess it's just showing ownership of the initial creator but um one thing i was going to say is something that stable diffusion and dolly are both doing is adding a i think they call it the digital fingerprint to created images and um it's not visible at all obviously that would be weird if there's just like random static that you could point out like that was made by ai but Digitally, you can go in and check if this was if this image was created by a model. Um, and I, I guess a couple of things with that. I'm I don't know enough about that whether or not like it's easily removable or like um, adding noise enough to it to where you can't pay attention to that or you won't be able to recognize that. But um, I guess that could be something in the future where we really nail down and if we really want to verify that something wasn't made by. AI model that would be interesting and I guess specifically for this was I think a big phrase um, big term I don't feel like in 2016 or maybe a bit later deep fakes um, so like very well made um, videos that look like Obama is saying something ridiculous or Trump is saying something smart um, <laughs> um, it's really hard to tell, especially as technology gets better and better, it's really hard to tell what's real or what's fake. Um, and so having digital fingerprints like that can, that can verify that something was made by an AI model maybe is, um, well, not maybe, it's really important. But um, And I guess for your point, Coley, that could maybe flow into NFTs um, and maybe add more value saying it's human created. Yeah. I think ultimately as someone that is in a creative industry architecture, which maybe has not um, doesn't have any direct application to the current um, generative design out there. Like they can't yet give you construction drawings for a building, but it doesn't feel far off to me. Um, I guess I just wonder where are the areas where a human can kind of make their value and protect it in, um, you know, an increasingly AI world. Um, I think uh, a good analogy or at least like, you know, playing devil's advocate is when you think about like the industrial revolution and how so many uh, manufactured goods are automated uh, as compared to, to uh, handcrafted, right? You think about like baskets and shelves and things like that. You, you, machines and factories can create like pretty similar standardized products at a fraction of the cost, right? 
I think that's kind of similar to what's going on with art. Obviously, there's a lot, uh, a, a lot more uh, nuance and differences with this. Uh, but in general, you know, now we're automating, uh, or at least making the production of art and creative pieces uh, much easier. Right? You type in a prompt, and it spits out a uh, a generated image. Um, and so, as far as the human touch, right, we still have artisan or handcrafted uh, goods today, like woodworking, and those those items are usually you know, priced much higher than the automated stuff. But there's still a market for it, and so, like Ben mentioned earlier, I think there still you know will be a market for human created art, uh, and that's something that can be verified through stuff like the digital footprint or the digital fingerprint, uh, and, and, uh, things like that. I think we, I guess I have noticed in the, I guess in my life, we obviously have had quite a shift to the internet and more digital things, but I also have seen, especially over the past couple of years, um, more and more people are switching to more physical, tangible items. Like, um, vinyl records are coming back extremely well. And I'm pretty sure maybe more records were sold in like, 2019 or 2020 or something more than ever before. Um, and similarly, I think film photography has blown up in the past couple of years, especially since COVID started. And I think we're seeing a lot more people focus more on tangible things rather than um, the digital, though obviously maybe more and more people are spending more and more time online as well. Now that we have these uh, AI art generators and the, the, sophisticated chatbots like ChatGPT, which can pretty much answer and create anything that you want, right? The, now the, uh, the value comes from, not from having good answers, but from having good questions, right? So it's shifting from what can you produce versus what can you ask the AI to produce, right? Like even though the AI is doing the most of the work, you have to give it the specific sequence of words to produce that output. So you have to have a good question. You have to have like a good prompt for uh, for the AI art generator, you know. And you, you can think right now that the prompts are, you know, uh, like specific sentences. But suppose you have this complicated string of words in such a way that the AI interprets it as a very novel idea and produces a novel image. Then your prompt itself, I think, could be the value that the human is adding to the AI generated uh, work of art or uh, creative piece, right? Yeah, I think one of the biggest reactions I've seen to chat GPT um, is this idea that's going to upend our education system. Because I mean, if you think about everything we've grown up with, we're very much based on answers. And if you just want a very clear and concise essay, or uh, a non biased, equal viewing of multiple different sides compare and contrast like almost everything you've been asked to write for any academic setting um in your life like chat gpt can do it to like a pretty damn good level already right now like that is something that is like changed overnight like before this existed and after this existed are like two totally different worlds and i don't know i mean I feel bad for anyone in education, like an educator right now, 
And like, I'm also kind of jealous as someone that just left college. I'm like, fuck, like this could have been amazing. Like too much time I could have saved on bullshit essays for classes I didn't want to write. Like, I mean, I love education. I love learning. But I think a lot of how our education system is built, it's regurgitation, it's memorization, it's proving that you know things. And I don't think it's that important to prove that you know things anymore. Like you said, it's about asking the questions. Um, so this is definitely going to turn education upside down. And I have no clue how that's going to turn out. And I, it feels to me like this is just one way in that we're kind of in a reshuffling of markets and a lot of values are going to change. I think this is a point where we've kind of discussed that we can't rely on the government to regulate these things. Like they just are too slow. Like we are miles behind chat GPT. There's no chance that we're going to catch up. And like with the speed of bureaucracy, I just don't think it's going to happen. And honestly, I don't know if I want it to happen. I think that for me, what I think the government needs to be doing the most of right now is allocating funds to address climate change because there are actually very real solutions that we know about and can be implemented. So like, I don't even know if I really want a bunch of 70 year olds to be thinking about open AI. You know, I, I think that's too far gone. The reshuffling is happening. And I'm curious, like, how we're going to position ourselves. And I think to a certain degree, I think it's the responsibility of us, like, as individuals to figure out where our value is. Um, but that's tough, because I don't really know if like what I just spent like 22 years of my life preparing for is going to be of use in another decade. Um, so I, I think that we need to be adaptable. We need to be like reskilled, reeducated. And thankfully, because of the Internet, like we can do a lot of these things. We can access a lot of this information. But um, we're a society uh, based on like credibility. And uh, previously, the the institution that gave us credibility is universities. Like a university degree is like an entrance ticket, like an NFT, like a little baseball card that gets you into certain clubs. You know, it allows me to be an architect and like, I'm not even done yet. I still have to go back to school so I can get licensed. And then like, that's a whole process. And then I have to join this club called AIA. And it's all just like status and proving that you did this thing. Um, but the problem is like, we're, we're on these very long paths and we don't even know if the end is going to exist by the time we get there. Um, so that's what's scary to me. And Ben, you mentioned earlier about um, you were worried that you're not on the curve, right? There's like this curve of technology and it's like exploding. And there's like a fear that we're going to get left behind. And that's not exclusive to just the tech industry. Like I understand that you guys are like in a place where innovation is everything. And if you're not innovating, you're falling behind and you can't, you can't do the same thing again and again. Consistency is meaningless. Um, but to a certain degree, every industry is becoming a tech industry. Um, so I just, re-education seems huge, but it doesn't seem like there's a good system for it at all. I think every industry becoming a tech industry is interesting. I think that's um, why I was really excited to go into CS because I could be a CS person in any industry and feel like I'm helping, which is, I think, really exciting. Um, another thing, yeah, I do think, man, the next 10 years are going to be insane. The next 20 are crazy. Um, another shout out to Sam Altman. He talks a lot about how humans and other people talk about this as well, but um, Sam Altman talks a lot about you know, how humans don't understand an exponential scale um, and how things are just like 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel like things have changed so much in the past 20 years. And before that, it was slower and slower. And I think things are just like going, you can't see me right now, but I'm ramping my hand up to a vertical line. It's getting so, so and so quick. And I, I just can't, I felt this way for a long time. I have no idea what to think of um, when I think of the next 10 years. And then like 10 years after that, that is just like, I have, I know it's going to be so much different than I can even imagine. So it's, I think it's really, really, really exciting. But like you talked about, Cole, I think we have a lot of things we need to do, especially in the government and um, also with tech companies and everybody that's affected by it, we all need to be, like you said, adaptable and um, ready to react and understand what is going on. So as this curve gets steeper, do you think it's harder to like get on it? Like how does someone graduating um, from college in 10 years, well, maybe college isn't valuable in 10 years, who knows, but how does anyone entering a new field um, gain traction and is it just getting harder and harder or like what, 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 it, what kind of entry barriers are there? I think it's interesting because maybe it's getting easier and easier. I think like we just talked about with chat GPT, um, I, I don't know if you all mentioned this, I was going to, um, for example, like if you're in high school struggling with calc, you can just send chat to GPT a message and say, I'm trying to do solve this in, integral with trig substitution, but I can't figure out how to do it. Here it is. It's going to walk you through every single step. And so tutors like that, a tutor through chat GPT um, is so beneficial to you if you um, don't can't pay for a tutor or can't um, don't have time to meet with a tutor or just can't find one or don't really like being with somebody else. Um, you have those tools to learn more and enter into things, um, I, I guess, with more of um, free access than you did before. Um, though I think, I guess my worry of not joining the data science field early enough is more about, I want to be there when all of this, like the beginning of the exponential curve, which I think we're in now is really starting so I can have a good influence on it and make sure, I guess I talked about this last time, but make sure um, I help in the ethical following of all of this quick question about this curve you talked about how humans can't conceptualize a curve right and i'm probably guilty of this as well but um this idea of getting on at the beginning of the curve um if it's like always exponential wouldn't that just make what came in the past seem insignificant to what is now so wouldn't you just always feel like you're like missing the end of the curve like when industrial revolution started and you know the guy that was still using like oxen to like pull his his uh, carts around was probably like, fuck, steam engines? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and do you think that just is constantly happen happening in like humans? Is that just like the whole arc of humanity is exponential, right? Like we haven't, we haven't even had yeah. agriculture that long, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's what I guess, I guess I mean inflection point when I'm thinking about an exponential curve. So if you see it like sloping up the moment it starts to get, into like really sloping up that's i guess where i think we are because yeah obviously like the the rate of progress i think as humans have grown like grown seems like one person but like <laughs> as technology has evolved as humans have grown um obviously we've gotten better and better and like started making tools and then got into the agricultural revolution and had enough food so then we could specialize into different things and then we learned 
more and more and have the industrial revolution, whatever. Um, but now with the internet, I think that is the biggest tool we have ever made by far. And so many things, so many opportunities are opening up because of that. So that is just increasing the rate of innovation, whether it's technology or not, or like society by a million, 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 million times. And so that's why I think I'm so intrigued by the next 10 years, because I think we're at a point where we are hitting a rate of whatever you want to call it, innovation, excitement, or like improvement or detriment, I guess, um, that we have not seen before. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it's going to be really amazing. I do like your uh, your point of the, the, the inflection point there. Um, and I think when you look back, you know, you have the cognitive revolution that distinguished distinguished us from other hominids. Um, and then you have an agricultural revolution and then industrial revolution. And now we're going through a technological revolution, right? Um, but I wonder how, um, since these scales are so big, like how are you able to zoom down um, with enough uh, like granularity to like say, this is the inflection point. Like when we say the industrial revolution, um, like there are certain, like some people say, oh, 1750 when this machine was built. But like, there's a lot of nuance to that. And like agriculture revolution goes the same. Like, well, was this the first form of agriculture on this part of the earth or was this? Um, so I get that like, as we're uh, like more into modern times, um, it's easier to pick those inflection points and our scales are getting smaller and smaller. But I guess I'm just not convinced that uh, this is the 10 years. Like, like what's to say it wasn't like 50 years ago or what's to say it's not another 50 years or what's to say it wasn't this like whole hundred year period and the innovation was just so fast that the inflection was just so constant. Like, I don't know. It seems like, uh, like you said, I, I don't think we can understand exponential curves that well. Um, and so I, I guess I'm just trying to ease your anxiety about, uh, <laughs> I think you will be successful because you are passionate and driven and you are trying to sort yourself in this, uh, this reorganization, right? Like we are going through a revolution um, and it's happening faster than any of the previous ones. Um, and it's hard to figure out where you can kind of have value. Yeah. I appreciate the easing of my worries. Um, That's what this show is supposed to do, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. If you couldn't already tell, I had fun playing around with the medium as the message with this one. Maybe a bit over the top, but just as ChatGPT learns from its users, we are trying to adapt the show based on the data we get from you all on our end. If that feels oddly invasive to you, remember, every content creator on these platforms has the same access to this data and is actively shaping their message accordingly. At least we're upfront about it. If you want to learn more about the back end of content creation, I will literally send you screenshots of the data dashboard I have access to. Last thing, if you're still here, that means you at least kind of like listening to us talk. This show is unconventional for a variety of reasons that makes it difficult to grow a big audience, but if you really want to help us out, tell someone about us. Word of mouth is 100% the best form of advertisement for podcasts. Thanks again.